You know, they're going to be talking about these KKK members and stuff. And we don't want people to think that that's what we're there to talk about. People know enough about those idiots already. We don't need to give you that much more information about who they are. We want people to really understand that, that structural problems within America are based on the institutions and are much more important than individual bigots in our society. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. That's a great mission. My name is Benjamin <laughs> Rangel. I'm Kyle Heggie. And I'm Sam Woods. Today on episode 21. 21 whole episodes 21. of Bridge the City. Almost a year after our first initial episode, Yes, right? one year. Episode 21, we have a Milwaukee talkie with Reggie Jackson, mm-hmm. who, among many things, is the head griot of America's Black Holocaust Museum. Yep, Reggie sat down with Ben and I to discuss his work in Milwaukee to address racial inequality and injustice. He has been a staple in the Milwaukee community, uh, advocating and educating people on the effects of America's racist past on today's society, and he travels all over the state facilitating dialogues. This is a a really incredible interview, a really incredible individual. All three of us have wanted to interview Reggie and have him on the podcast after hearing him speak at a variety of different things. I actually think that the TEDx event where yes. uh, is where we first, Kyle and I first heard Reggie. And yeah, once you hear him speak, you, you just want to you wanna hear from him some more. So A part of me is glad, though, that we didn't get him on the pod until now because the timing of this episode couldn't be more perfect. Since American Black Holocaust Museum is reopening soon on North Avenue and Bell Phillips Drive. So, uh, I think a concrete action step right away is visit this when it opens. You know, support this wonderful entity coming to Milwaukee to tell a, a really necessary story. And then until then, enjoy Reggie. Exactly. My name is Reggie Jackson, and I wear a lot of hats in the city. I'm uh, the head grill for America's Black Holocaust Museum, and I've been a volunteer with the museum since the summer of 2002. I've been the head grill since the summer of 2003, so I was part of the small group of us that uh, reestablished the museum after it closed. We got together about a year after the museum closed and started thinking of ways we could continue to do the work that Dr. Cameron started without having a building. And so one of the first things we decided to do was to create an online presence of virtual museum. So I've been a part of that process, uh, and it's led to uh, us having a new building, which will be opening uh, really soon, within the next couple months. I'm also a member of RID Racism Milwaukee for the last about four years. That's a group here in the city that is really doing some great work in terms of connecting people with organizations and events that are happening. They have a racial justice calendar, which they have any events that are related to racial justice. They invite organizations to put it on their calendar. I'm also um, very fortunate I was appointed to the uh, city's Equal Rights Commission. And I'm also one of the co-owners of a company called Nurturing Diversity Partners that uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Fran Kaplan, and I started basically to take the work that she and I had done with America's Black Holocaust Museum for about nine years. We decided that we were missing an audience, the audience in the suburbs and the rural communities of the state. So we've been actively basically going around the state doing presentations and workshops. Those are kind of some of the things I do outside of my regular nine to five job. 
So uh, America's Black Holocaust Museum was founded in 1988 by James Cameron. He was a 74-year-old guy living in Milwaukee, and um, in 1979, uh, he went on a trip that really kind of gave him the idea for creating a museum. But to go back further in his life, as a 16-year-old kid living in Marion, Indiana, he was a victim of a lynching, which he survived. And as far as we know, he's the only known living survivor of lynching. We know he's the only survivor of lynching who wrote about it. He wrote uh, his memoirs about it, uh, talking about the lynching that he survived in Marion, Indiana on August 7, 1930. And so um, in 1979, he and his wife, Virginia, went on a trip with their church to the Holy Land. And when they were in Jerusalem, they visited Yad Vashem, which is Jewish Holocaust Memorial there. They spent three, four hours there seeing what happened to Jewish individuals and families throughout Europe during the Holocaust. And the last part of, of the tour uh, at that time was a garden that was called the Garden of the Righteous Gentiles. And it was a garden designed to honor all of those non-Jews who assisted Jews escaping the Holocaust. And so they had you know hundreds of names of people there who had assisted uh, Jewish individuals and families escaping. And so as they were standing in that garden, uh, he says that he turned to Virginia, his wife, and said, Virginia, you know what, we need a museum like this in America to tell what happened to black people and those freedom-loving whites that have helped black people throughout the time they've been in America. So that was his motivation for creating the museum, uh, giving it the name that he gave it. And so he created the museum. Uh, the, the physical museum stayed open for 20 years. Uh, we were finally forced to close in 2008 in the middle of the Great Recession because we, we simply ran out of money. Uh, but the mission of the museum is, 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 is pretty clear. It's, it's to share with people uh, the history of the atrocities suffered by African Americans since we first arrived on these shores so that people can understand these things that they didn't learn in school. Uh, Dr. Cameron wanted the museum to fill in all of those blank spaces in what we learned in history class. He specifically wanted to do it so that people would have a better understanding of how we got to this place we're in. And most importantly, it would allow people, once they have a better understanding, to then begin to have conversations about reconciliation and healing. Because he said those are the things you can't have reconciliation, you can't have repair, you can't have healing unless you you have an honest understanding of what happened. And that was what he wanted the museum to be. That's what the museum has continued to be. Uh, even since the museum closed, uh, to continue to, to have those those uh, pieces of American history that we all don't learn in school, talk to people, bring people together to have conversations about those things. And so when people go to the new, uh, the new space uh, that's being built, things that they're going to see are some of the things that they saw at the former museum. So there's going to be uh, exhibits which talk about uh, life in Africa before Africans became enslaved. What what were they what were they doing? What was their their typical life like? What were their communities uh, like? Because these are things that none of us learn in history class. And then talk about the process of how they transitioned from that style of living to becoming uh, you know the victims in the transatlantic slave trade and how that entire process worked out and how here in America. Uh, you know, of uh, the estimated 12.5 million Africans who were taken away from Africa and made it safely to the New World, only about 3 to 5% came to the present-day United States. And so each system of slavery in the New World, whether it be in Jamaica or, or in Brazil or Mexico or the U.S. or Canada, wherever, all of the systems worked in a very similar way, but they had differences. And so, for instance, um, it was much more likely to have families separated in the U.S., 
than it would be in some of the other communities because they felt if you kept the families together, you know, they would at least have more of a probability of working harder. So, you know, you're going to learn in, in detail about the journey over the Middle Passage uh, across the Atlantic Ocean on those slaving ships. Uh, you're going to learn what it was like to be um, working as an enslaved person in the U.S. Uh, there's going to be an exhibit about the history of lynching, and, you know, that's a kind of an ugly part of American history that we don't really talk much about. Uh, but also, some of the things you're going to see are not just the the things that blacks were victims of, but how they reacted to that and how they always had some level of agency in fighting back against all of these horrible things that were happening to them. And, you know, as we move forward as an institution, uh, part of what we're doing with the virtual museum online and the physical museum is merging them two together. So, for instance, you'll be able to kind of see uh, a part of this on in the physical museum, but then learn more about it, more details by going to the virtual museum. And so we're also going to be having, uh, as we move forward, the ability to kind of add new exhibits and have traveling exhibits as we had before. Uh, so I think it's going to be a really eye-opening experience for people who have not been well-versed in this history. I think some of the things are going to shock people, but it's not done for shock value. It's done to simply show this is, this is America. This is what we, we were, and this is what we've done. And because we don't know those things, we have... A kind of a misconception about um, the the founding of our nation and the and the things that have happened and, and and probably I would say the least known part of American history is what happened from the time slavery ended until the civil rights movement commenced in the 1950s. That almost hundred year period is literally a period of time where when you learn about it in history class, blacks are almost completely absent from that. And so what was going on, what was happening to blacks during that period of time? That's what Dr. Cameron wanted people to be aware of, that this is a hidden part of our history. You need to know that there were thousands and thousands of blacks around the country who were lynched. You need to know that there were major race riots where whites left their communities and came into black communities and literally destroyed the entire community and beat and killed people, looted their homes and businesses and ran blacks out of town permanently. You need to know that states uh, like Oregon basically banned black people from moving in their state constitution. You need to know that the state of Indiana uh, banned black people from living in the state unless they had a certain amount of money to pay. Uh, so it's a lot of things like that that you'll see at the museum that really will kind of allow you to get into a better understanding of, of the, the principle that I use all the time is the, the idea of how we got here, why we are in this place, and then those things will lead you to a better way of having conversations about the solutions to the problems, how we can overcome these, you know, centuries of, of these practices, but also be very aware that these are things that are still ongoing. We still have to be, you know, we, I used to tell people when they would get, get tours from me at the museum that, you know, the Black Holocaust is not like something in the past. It's, it's current manifestations as well. And so when you look at like the manifestations of, of policing within the black community. You go back through the history and you'll find that the first police departments developed out of slave patrols. And so the the fact that we have poor relations between the black community and police today, it's a long history of having poor relations with police. It's always been the case. There's never been a time where the police and black people have gotten along. You know, uh, very few people have talked about how, you know, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, um, 
uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy wrote a book called Post Traumatic Slave Disorder, where she talks about, look, you had people who were traumatized, people who who were, were, were beaten and killed in front of their families, who had children taken away from them, and these people were traumatized. Uh, you know, women and girls were raped repeatedly, their husbands were, were treated horribly, and none of these people received any any counseling. Uh, when slavery ended, no one said, oh, my goodness, we need to help you to overcome this trauma. And so when you look at it, it's still kind of the case today. People are, are being traumatized um, and they're not getting any help for it. They're not getting any treatment. Uh, we treat people, you know, who come back from war uh, and dealing with the trauma they dealt with. But people within our society who are traumatized on a daily basis, we just, oh, well, deal with it. You know, get a stiff upper lip, and that's kind of how we treat people. So those are some of the things that I talk about in terms of the solutions and repairing things moving forward. You have to create a mechanism that allows people to get the assistance they need um, to deal with problems. So do you think it would be pretty safe to say that when somebody visits the museum, they're not going to leave feeling like, oh, this is a museum of the past. They're going to leave. Uh, with the clear understanding that what they just experienced has ramifications to what they will experience once they leave right, uh, that museum, right. and if they, uh, at least if they live in Milwaukee or yeah, anywhere, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because there would be uh, exhibits that talk about current-day affairs, okay. you know, the police brutality and things of that nature will be uh, some of the stuff that you'll see there as well. So okay. current, current affairs will be a big part of it. Yeah, I wanted to hear more, actually, about uh, your work in nurturing diversity partners, specifically, mm-hmm. I understand if you can name clients, but like mm-hmm. what type of clients do you take on and like what does that look like? Sure. Uh, you know, we've had a variety of different clients. Probably the biggest uh, contract we signed to date uh, is with the Walworth School District. So they developed over the last two years an equity plan to kind of help them deal with the changing demographics of the school district. So they reached out to Fran and I about assisting them with the equity plan. So we started uh, last month with our first session with them, we've trained and hired a group of facilitators that work with us. We do um, a facilitated dialogue method we call the Caring Circle, and we use that to bring diverse groups of people together to have conversations about different topics. So we're going to be doing one session with the school district every month throughout the school year. So these are all of the top leaders of the school district, all of the principals. So we've been working with them uh, and kind of the way that we do our facilitated dialogue with them is to kind of we introduce a topic by either either having like a short lecture about it, maybe a film clip, something of that nature to kind of bring the topic into their state of awareness. And then we we craft questions directly related to whatever that topic is. And we have them uh, go through a process of uh sharing out about how they feel about that particular topic and then we require the people in the groups to actually actively listen and then share back with each member of the group what it does is it it trains you to actively listen because you we normally have this next in line syndrome where while you're talking I'm thinking my response to you so we have people not respond to people in that way we have them actively listen and then kind of peer it back what people say and we we think that the most effective part of it is that we do it on multiple sessions because usually what happens is when you have facilitated dialogue people come together one time have great conversation and they leave hungry for more conversation so that's been you know really effective for us uh, so far the first session went exceptionally well uh, we've also done uh, facilitated dialogue sessions with different churches we did 
uh, a session with uh, a group of UU uh, members in Kenosha uh, earlier this year. And we've also done uh, a very similar program with Congregation Shalom, which is the largest uh, Jewish congregation uh, in the area. Um, and basically kind of talking to people about how we have such difficult times uh, having conversations about race and why it's difficult, looking at kind of the history of why we don't really know how to have these conversations in an effective way. And so all of them are kind of designed with the same thing in mind, to really help people to have a deeper understanding of how we've gotten into this mess that we're in in terms of race uh, and why people from different groups have completely different perspectives on it. We don't always understand why people can see the exact same thing and have completely polar opposite views on it. It's really a lot of it is based on our lived experiences and the way that we're taught to see each other, uh, the way that we're taught to kind of be very divided as a society and, and why those divisions continue to bother us today. Is there a clientele or a community that you haven't been able to talk to yet that you really hope um, either invites you in or you've reached out to and, and wanted to talk to? Well, part of what I've been trying to do is to reach as many different communities as possible. So, you know, as we reached out to the suburban communities uh, and did work in Heartland and in Cedarburg and Mequon and you know, we went down to Kenosha and Racine and Burlington. Here in Milwaukee, I've, I've actually recently made some inroads into the Latino community, talking to some leaders of that community about doing some of the programming that I do in that community. I've also made friends uh, in the uh, Asian American community, particularly the Hmong community, uh, and I've done some work with them. I've reached out and done programs with the uh, Muslim community as well. So there, you know, there's a, a very diverse group of people uh, in our metropolitan area, and I've tried uh, very actively to engage with as many of those groups as possible and continue to kind of do this work, but do it in a very inclusive way so that everybody knows that we're all kind of in this mess together uh, and, and kind of break down those barriers of thinking that we have all of these divisions, when in many cases, a lot of the problems that we have are you know, they're, they're similar for, for different populations of people. Do clients or communities tend to reach out to you or, or to nurturing diversity partners, or does nurturing diversity tend to reach out to its clients, or is it kind of just a problem? You know, we have not reached out to anyone. All wow. of it has been through word of mouth. All of the business that we've gotten has been through people reaching out to us to do this work. Question related to some of the the tools you might bring to those lectures and those conversations. Mm -hmm. In particular, I'm curious about how you feel of using the concept and introducing it to audiences, the concept of white fragility. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it was useful because it gave me language to talk about the way people mm -hmm. react around race in these mm -hmm. conversations. But I noticed it wasn't something that the few times that I saw you speak, it's not something that you bring up often, or at mm -hmm. least maybe not uh, something that I, I heard or as a centerpiece. So um, is that something you discuss with your participants or... Well, yeah. that, that's a great question. So Fran and I, um, you know, we've developed very specific ways of talking about these topics. And, and one of the things that we do is we, we, we pay very close attention to how language works and how language affects people um, in terms of, of their ability to listen and their desirability of listening. And we've learned that there are certain terms, when you use those terms, it turns people off. It literally turns people's brains off. Um, you guys are familiar with the idea of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I read a study, and I, 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 I wish that I could remember the source of the study, but I read a study last year 
uh, about cognitive dissonance. And so typically the way that uh, scholars have researched cognitive dissonance, the impact on people is to introduce dissonance and then ask people questions about how it made them feel. And what they've discovered is that that method is not the most effective method because people aren't always honest about how it impacted them. So one group decided to do a, do it in a different way. And what they did was they hooked up people to a functional MRI machine. And then they, they introduced dissonance to see what literally happened inside of their brains. And what they discovered was that when you introduce dissonance to people, it literally turned off part of their brain. Literally, on an unconscious level, part of their brain was like, lights out mm -hmm. and so what we what we've learned by by looking at that and also kind of our, our experience working with people is to try to talk about these issues using different language so there's certain terms that we don't like to use we don't like to use the, the term white privilege we don't like to use the term white fragility mm -hmm. we don't like to use the term white supremacy because what it does is it creates a level of dissonance within people that prevents them from really listening anymore. Mm -hmm. their, their brains are turned off. And we want people to be actively engaged. That doesn't mean that we don't talk about mm -hmm. those things. Okay. We talk about them very openly and honestly, but we know that we use different language. So I can talk to you about white supremacy all day without calling it white supremacy. I can talk to you about uh, white privilege and, and show you examples of it. We want to be open and honest and have those conversations. And we talk in great detail about all of those topics. But we believe that it's, it's, it's important to use the correct language to keep people fully engaged with the conversation. Yeah, I'm wondering if that, like, how frustrating that that can be sometimes. When you, or does it, does it feel like you're, like, almost like dancing around certain concepts, or mm -hmm. maybe not certain concepts, but like saying, saying, saying what it is, for, saying right? what it is mm -hmm. like saying and naming what it. white supremacy is, but not saying right. right. White like, there's some kind of power to that. Where it's like, whoa, you know, like it is it's part bad. part of, part of what makes like the term white supremacy problematic for people is that people associate certain things with white supremacy. They, when when you say white supremacy to people, what do they automatically think of? Ku Klux Klan, neo Nazis. They think, and so if you tell them, right? yeah, yeah, right. So they automatically separate themselves. Well, that's not me. I'm not part of that group. But what we tell people is that it's not about individual actions and, and individual bigots. It's more about the systems that are in place, the institutions. So the the, the institutions that exist. Basically, we, we give you details about how those institutions work and the impact of institutional policies over the course of time. And when you look at it from that perspective, you understand that the institutions are more important than individual people are. We could have three million KKK members, but it, it, are they really that important? Are they more important than a criminal justice system that per perpetuates inequalities and disparities? Are they more important than an economic system that barred blacks from certain occupations over the course of years? Are they more important than, than federal, state, and local policies that segregated blacks and Latinos and, and Jewish families intentionally? So we believe that, that we want to have a much broader conversation because when you say we're going to have a talk about white supremacy tonight, people think, oh, you're going to be talking about the KKK and the Nazis. We don't want people to think that we're specifying that that is the problem because it really isn't the problem. The problem is the institutional and structural nature of the way we do things in America. And and we we use this this idea that's very similar to that. It's, it's a, an idea. Uh, Joe Fagan, uh, sociologist, um, 
came up with the idea and what he calls it is the white racial frame. And what that is is the frame of reference that all of us as Americans have learned to see the world from. And that frame of reference teaches us to see certain things as good, certain things as bad, some things as beautiful, some things as ugly. And so we use that principle instead of the principle of white supremacy. And you, you automatically get rid of that dissonance that would be, be caused by people thinking, that, well, you know, they're going to be talking about these KKK members and stuff. And we don't want people to think that that's what we're there to talk about. People know enough about those idiots already. We don't need to give you that much more information about who they are. We want people to really understand that, that structure problems within America are based on the institutions and are much more important than individual bigots in our society. And because people automatically associate white supremacy with those particular things, then it leads to a, to me, a, a conversation that's much smaller than it needs to be. And so that's, that's primary reason we don't. So we don't really kind of you know, people, when we tell people this, people think that, well, they're going to try to skirt around issues and not call, you know, a spade a spade or whatever. But we don't. We, we, we are very open and honest about what we do. But we, we, we just simply believe that in order to have the conversation and have people fully engaged, that you use specific language that doesn't turn their brains off. Because mm. what good does this do to have a conversation with people if half the people in the audience are sitting there like this and they're, you know, they're ticked off and the first time white supremacy comes out of your mouth, they're sitting there and they're not listening to you anymore. We don't want people to be in that in that state of mind when they're... I, I'm, I'm wondering if, that, if those conversations ever get tricky when you're talking about like uh, systems of power and systems of oppression with... Mm -hmm people who are part of that system in that like like government workers or like mm -hmm. certain corporations or something like that mm -hmm. does that ever I don't, I don't know like is does that kind of problem arise ever where you're like I you have to soften it maybe soften language or change language even more just to say like make it clear like I'm not pointing out you I'm talking about like a larger thing the, the way that we talk about these issues we, we frame them in historical context so people can see how the different institutions develop and how the outcomes from those institutions have kind of played out over the course of U.S. history. And, you know, it, it's some people are, are uncomfortable. You know, for instance, if you're talking to people who are members of the criminal justice system, which I did uh, last year at MATC, this group of judges that were there and prosecutors, um, public defenders, uh, people from the sheriff's department, police department were there. And, you know, people within systems that have created tremendous disparities that have had a history of being unfair to different populations they don't like to hear that about the system that they belong to they everyone wants to think that whatever they're part of is wonderful and, and great and but you have to look at it honestly and understand that for for instance if we're talking about policing in the u.s i always tell people that it's not about the individual police officers. That's not really relevant because, you know, in every profession you have people that are really, really excellent at their jobs and you have people that really aren't very good at their jobs and then everybody else is in between. But the issue with policing isn't the individual police officers. It's with the system of policing, how we police, how we choose which neighborhoods to police in, how we allocate resources, how we respond to different communities' complaints about how the police treat them. And so we, we try to talk to people about the fact that you're, you're working within a system that it doesn't matter who the people are within that system. The system stays the same year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, regardless of who the people are. So whether you're a part of the system and you think that you're an important part of it as a police officer or whomever today, 
what can you actually do as a police officer to change the system that you're working in as an individual? There's really not much you can do. So what we have to do is we have to look at how the system works, look at how that institution uh, does the work that they do, and then work on making changes to the institutions so that we want people to know it's not about you as an individual. There are things that you can do, obviously, as an individual to kind of, you know, adjust the way that you do things. But overall, you could be, you know, the, the, the greatest cop in the city, you know, the most fair cop in the city, but people are not going to see you as that because you're part of a system that they see as unfair. Speaking of systems and institutions, is there one particular like characteristic of an institution, whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's um, how we elect officials, um, whatever, something that you've looked into a lot and you've researched a lot, like if you could reform one piece of an institution right now and, and make the most positive change on this community of Milwaukee, like what, what institution or what system would that be? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of institutions that we can make positive changes in. One that I think would be a, a, an immediately uh, positive result uh, is within the criminal justice system. So within the state of Wisconsin, when you are sent to prison, you're given a certain amount of time behind bars, and then you're given some type of supervised release once you get out. And so those people who get out of prison are monitored by their probation parole agent, and there's a list of 18 rules that the state of Wisconsin has. Uh, and then in addition to that, your probation parole agent can give you additional rules. And so if you violate any of those rules while you're on supervised release, then what happens is you can be revoked and sent back to prison. And the way it works in Wisconsin is, say, if you have three years of supervised release and you, you break one of the rules, say you fail a drug test, you go back to prison, when you get out, your clock starts all over again. So you, maybe you were out for six months. That six months that you were out doesn't count. It's not taken away. And we're the only state that does that. So when you look at the system of revocation in Wisconsin, it's a very unfair system. And to me, the major change that we can make, which I don't think would be that great of a change, would be to do what some other states are beginning to do and look at revocation and saying, well, a technical violation of your supervisor lease, that shouldn't lead you to go back to prison. There should be some term, type of punishment for it, obviously, but sending you back to prison shouldn't be the punishment for you being 15 minutes late for a meeting or, you know, getting a job without permission or, you know, a lot of the other things that, that people don't know. If people would read the list of things, they would be really surprised at what people could be sent back to prison for. And so as a result of, of the revocation process, we have about 3,000 people a year in Wisconsin that go back to prison due to revocations. Some of those are crimeless revocations, just technical violations. Some are people who committed new crimes. But in many cases, even people who commit new crimes, that new crime may get them, say, I don't know, a year in prison. But if you revoke them and they have three or four years left on their period of, of supervised release, well, guess what? The DA is going to say, well, we're not going to charge them because if we send them back under revocation, they're going to spend more time in prison than if we were to sentence them for this new crime. So a lot of people end up going to prison in Wisconsin, in my belief, unnecessarily. Uh, you know, it's called crimeless revocation because I've looked at the data and over the last 10 years, about 30, between 30 and 40 percent of people who've gone to prison in the state each year have gone back due to revocations. There are many people that are in prison simply because they they didn't follow the rules or for whatever reason there was some technical violation. And what makes it even worse, though, with the revocation process is that all it takes is for someone to complain that you did something. 
you don't have to do anything and you don't have the right to have an attorney representing you. So unless you have money to pay an attorney to be in there with you. And it's it's a shame that so many people go to prison in our state as a result of that. So that would be the one thing that I would change that would I think would have massive impacts on the state of Wisconsin. One of the things that I learned from you when you spoke to us at City Year was this idea that we're imprisoning people from the city of Milwaukee or from cities across the, the state and then moving them to these counties they've never stepped foot in before, mm-hmm. and then counting them towards the electoral value of those particular counties. Uh, could you just speak a little bit about what I'm getting at here, and, and so our listeners can, can hear this as well? Sure. They, they call that prison gerrymandering. So basically what happens is, and not every state does it the same. Some states will count you... Uh, for instance, the state of New York, I believe, if you're from New York City and you're incarcerated in prison, you go to some prison upstate New York, you're still counted as a resident of wherever you came from. In Wisconsin, we don't do that. We count you wherever you are located at. So when they do the census, if you're in a prison in Washara County or, you know, someplace far away from Milwaukee, uh, you're no longer counted as a resident of Milwaukee. So what happens is it gives the smaller communities more electoral power in state government, and it takes that power away from cities where majority of blacks live, Milwaukee, Racine, Kenosha, and, and, uh, and Madison. So what ends up happening is the places where majority of black and Latino residents of the state live, they literally lose part of their power electorally because people who are taken away and put in prison are now counted as residents of those other communities. And it, it, it ends up being a very powerful tool for those communities because what it does is it this increase in the prison population increases the total population of that community, which means they have more representation, and that means they get more dollars from the state as well. And you probably saw the slide that I shared that showed the the huge percentage of people in some counties, uh, the black population, a huge percentage of them that are in that county who are incarcerated versus the ones who who are not incarcerated. And it, it's really uh, a problem, you know, when we talk about mass incarceration in Wisconsin, people know we have the highest incarceration rate for black males, but they don't know the extent of that incarceration or the impact of it, the, the prison gerrymandering impact. is really, really important thing for people to be aware of. So we want our mm-hmm. listeners to leave... Uh, every episode with something small or large that they might be able to do immediately or in the next week or whatever to engage in whatever topic we're discussing, in this case, race or social justice. Mm -hmm. So what is an action step that you would provide or action steps, plural, to our listeners? Well, I, I would suggest two things for people that are really not all that difficult. Number one is to educate yourself about these things, to uh, read uh, books written about African Americans by African Americans. You know, there are a tremendous number of, of books that talk about the African American experience. Uh, most of us who aren't from that community don't know much about that daily experience, uh, such as Slavery by Another Name, which talks about how slavery was reinvented after the 13th Amendment passed and how we had a system that replicated slavery. Uh, watch movies like 12 Years a Slave. Um, and then I think in terms of, uh, of the next step in the process is to begin to become involved with organizations in the city that are working to alleviate some of the current ailments we have. So uh, like I always say, if you go to Rid Racism Milwaukee's uh, website and look at their calendar, 
uh, the social justice calendar, you'll be really surprised at how many organizations are doing work, how many programs there are. Literally almost every day there's some program. The more you become invested in doing the work, the more people you're going to meet, the more organizations you're going to network with. And what you'll end up finding is that you may have a specific niche within that because I think what people want to do is they want to attack this huge problem, this big problem. What can I do to fix racism? What can I do to fix poverty? It's like, uh, dude, slow down a little bit. It's a big problem. Pick a little piece of it and work on that little piece. And so that's what I always suggest to people is find some small part of the problem that they can do with some organization. I think that there's a great deal of uh, people who are really concerned about the current state of affairs in the country and really uh, the current state of Milwaukee, and they really want to make Milwaukee a much better place. And they're actively looking for ways to do it. Uh, and there's there's plenty of places you can go and do that work. Uh, so that's the two things I would suggest. Educate yourself and then find those organizations that are doing the work already and, and get involved. Are you hopeful for the future? I'm very hopeful. You know, I, people ask me that question all the time, and I say, well, I wouldn't do this work unless I was hopeful. I mean, if, if I was you know, pessimistic about it. And, and there's always reason to be pessimistic instead of optimistic because these are such huge problems and, and seemingly intractable in some instances because we've been working and talking about these for so long. But I've always said, and I learned this from Dr. Cameron, and listen, if you're not willing to do the work, then who else is going to do it? And so I, I want to be involved in doing the work and whether or not we make you know, great changes, um, who knows? Uh, but I want to be part of any positive changes that take place. And so I have to maintain a sense of, of, of hope um, and optimism because I've seen people change. I've, the people that I've worked with, people that have come to my workshops and presentations tell me that, Reggie, I, I really had no idea about these things, and, and now I have a better understanding. To me, that's progress. That's, that's tremendous progress, just... Knowing how the problems were created is really uh, an important step in, in making changes to your individual self and also to have that ability to become what I call a change agent and change the people that you have interactions with on a daily basis, your friends, family members, neighbors, you know, members of your church. Uh, uh, it's amazing the power that an individual can have to change other people. So this was one of my favorite interviews, and there were so many great things to take away from it, but what really stood out to me the most was Reggie's focus on helping others understand how we got to the place we are today. I think racism is more hidden now than ever. In the great words of the old Kanye West, racism's still alive, they just be concealing it. And for younger people, and, and even some older people as well, they can have a view that racism is a remnant of the past, and it doesn't affect people to this day. That's why I think that the Black Holocaust Museum is so important, because it demonstrates how the effects of slavery and racism are still very much alive today. In fact, many of our political institutions that are still standing were compromises based on slavery, black lives, and black votes. 
And I'm reminded of an article I read that discussed the two different types of the United States of America. One is the idealistic version we often hear about, that all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that America is a city on a hill, a beacon of hope, and the land of opportunity. And there is no doubt that America has achieved some truly historic things. And it has been a place that has given some the chance to achieve the American dream. But to accept that as the only America is to ignore the dark underbelly of our country. Uh, one that was centered on slavery and racism, and that has been extremely prevalent in the formation of the America that we all know. I think we all should be proud of America for the opportunities it has given some people. But to accept the first version of America without recognition and reckoning of the second version is truly an abuse of privilege. So I hope for all listeners, and even myself, what this episode does is make clear that this best version of America so many of us believe in is not the only version. And for so many in America, it has never even been an option. Until we, those who can help make structures more equitable, recognize that and then do our part to create a more just society, starting right here in Milwaukee, we are benefiting from a system that was created through the oppression of another group of people. And I think that is an injustice we all must grapple with. And that's why I think the Black Holocaust Museum will be instrumental in that reckoning. The opening of the museum is delayed primarily because of a lack of funding, so here's an action step. Donate. Or get the organization you work for or are involved with to donate to the museum to help open it up as soon as possible and keep it running. As America Nationwide struggles to reconcile its past with its ideals, let's make Milwaukee a hub for understanding the unedited version of American history. I often hear people talk about ways we can, quote, put Milwaukee on the map. And ideas for this usually revolve around attracting young professionals, the new streetcar, or building flashy new condos on the river. But what if we think differently about what it means to become a city that the whole country is talking about? What if we put Milwaukee on the map for being the home of America's Black Holocaust Museum? What if Milwaukee becomes a place you go to to learn more about the unedited version of American history and how it affects our lives today? For me, this is how I want my hometown to be discussed nationwide, and folks like Reggie are out there putting in the work to make it happen. So go to abhmuseum.org and donate as you're able, or better yet, talk to your employer or organizations you're involved with about donating to help keep this project going. My final thoughts for this episode have a lot to do with Reggie Jackson's comments around not mentioning white supremacy or white fragility when he's having conversations with primarily white people around race and injustice. And for me, it's difficult still, uh, even as I re-listen to this episode and and reflect back on our conversation, it's difficult for me to disconnect the importance of naming white supremacy as it is when dealing with these conversations around race. And I 100% understand his logic. However, at a certain point, somebody's whiteness or their ignorance or their biases uh, can, can be a liability. And I want to make the listeners aware of how, despite having this conversation with Reggie Jackson weeks ago now, I'm still left wrestling with this balance between addressing the systemic big challenges around race while also confronting confronting in some ways the racial arrogance that many people in society have. Thank you so much for listening today. 
We hope that our conversation with Reggie will inspire you to educate yourself and get involved, as Reggie suggested, with his action steps. And in addition, we really hope that this episode uh, allowed you to better understand how the historical remnants of slavery are still alive and well today. And the first responsibility we all have, especially white people, other people in positions of privilege in America, is to educate ourselves and be aware of these historical traumas. We want to thank a few people who made this episode possible. Firstly, thank you to Reggie Jackson, who took the time to meet with us for this episode. Thank you to Marquette University and the Trinity Fellowship there, whose space we used for the interview. And lastly, of course, thank you to you all. Yes, the most important people are the listeners. Uh, And our ask of you all is to please rate, subscribe, and share uh, this interview. One, because it's phenomenal. But two, when you do rate and you subscribe, it allows other people to notice the podcast, other Milwaukeeans to take notice, other Milwaukeeans to be inspired, and ultimately, we hope, lead to uh, a more just and equitable place. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot. Just go to our website, Mm -hmm. uh, copy the link, control C, Mm -hmm. and then paste it in your Facebook. Which, control V. Control V. When's the last time you did that? Honestly, ask yourself, when's the last time I shared out Bridge the City? to my friends and you know how cool it makes you look when you share a dope ass podcast people are like oh they're smart they listen to podcasts it's about milwaukee they care about the community it's a win-win do that for us please yeah and lastly just let us know how you've helped bridge the city. city